Previously on Newsbreak, Lotus FM. It must be such a privilege for you as a woman, um, a Sisulu woman, to be celebrating the year of Mama Albertina Sisulu. Yes, it is. It is a privilege and um, an honor, but also it's something which has brought home to us the need for a lot of legacy work because what we found is that history gets lost very quickly. And most definitely, I think that legacy really becomes the focus now when you commemorate a centenary as, as grand as Mama Sisulu's. But before we come to that legacy, let's just talk about the narrative and the story. You know, help the young people, help every South African right now understand what Mama Sisulu stood for. Hopefully people would have read about her, would know that she was born in 1918, uh, in in the Transkai, in the village of uh, Tolobe, and that she grew up there, went to Joburg, became a nurse in the 1940s. In 1940, married Walter Sisulu, became a political leader in her own right by the 1950s, and uh, after he was sentenced to a life pre- uh, imprisonment on Robben Island, she carried on the struggle. She was a nurse. Uh, and a community worker, and she had a great passion for children and education. I think that's in a nutshell. Oh, and then she served as a member of parliament, the first democratic parliament, and she was actually the person who nominated Nelson Mandela to become president in the first sitting of the democratic parliament. Really what she stood for was a steadfastness in terms of standing up for what one believed to be right, to be just and to be uh, fair. And I think in a modern South Africa, those issues remain eternal and something that, as you pointed out at the beginning, still needs to be worked on. Yes, she was very steadfast and committed. I think she was also a very modest person in her the way she she carried herself. She she didn't like uh she really didn't like the limelight. She was there because it had to be. But if she had a way she was more of a quieter, reflective person. But what I think what is important about the legacy for us and especially for the grandchildren I've seen is that it it really makes them express the love they felt for their grandmother and what she gave them. The commitment to education, the the commitment to just doing the right thing and to being con- to be consistent and therefore people. Also what they say, you know, there's a saying she, she was not a respecter of persons. She would she would treat everybody the same. Um it it didn't mean if someone came from a very humble background or whether they were millennial she would accord them the same courtesy and the same consideration. And that's something that I really admired of her. The other thing is that she was also a very courageous woman. You know, I've seen her standing up to the police when my knees were knocking, and she just would stand up and face them and draw herself tall and look them in the eye and just defy them. It was really quite something to see. I can't help, and I have to ask this question, watching that, watching her in action, um, seeing her, you know, not just talk the talk, but literally walk it as well. What was it like for you? I mean, you mentioned your knees were knocking, but take me through the experiences of the actual encountering of her standing up to um, the apartheid forces. 
Well, the first experience was when I had come from Zimbabwe because I, I, I come from Zimbabwe and I was getting married to her son. At the time, he was in exile. So I, I came on my own. Um, in fact, I think it was my second visit in 1988 and I was with my mother. And so I was feeding the baby at about, I think it must have been two or three in the morning. And we heard this knocking from, it was like, I, I've never experienced anything like it. If, if you're in a house and people are knocking at every door and every window right around the house, just this loud, insistent, violent uh, knocking. And I, I, I've got, I got such a shock because it, I, I just didn't know what to think. And then they shouted, open, police, just open. And she, I remember her seeing her coming out of the bedroom uh, with her pink dressing gown, flying to the kitchen door to open it and shouting. And then they all came in with their guns. And while they were searching the house with their guns, she was scolding them, telling them, you're such a disgrace coming to people's houses, decent people's houses at this time of the morning. Who do you think you are? Have you got no yeah, shame? Yeah. And <laughs> they were moving around with their guns, and I was so terrified. But she, I mean, that thing of her scolding these young police uh, and just asserting herself with no uh, fear of you, the consequences, it's something which... It's an image which I'll never yeah, ever forget. Yeah. Because, I mean, just the act of raising your voice to that officer, the person of superior colour at that stage, in itself was something that anybody's, uh, you know, in that in that era, anybody's would, knees would knock just to do that. But there must have been some, some really great, um, really great stories of 1956. Yes, she did. Uh, the Women's March, when, when I was writing the biography, researching the biography which I wrote on her and Tata Sisulu, uh, I spent some time, a lot of time interviewing them. And one of the interviews was about the Women's March. And she spoke about how women came from all over the country and in very typical circumstances. Because to travel at that time, but at that time it was during the apartheid era, just moving around as a black person in the cities was was an issue, and you could be stopped any time and harassed. And these women came from all over the country. They came at their own cost, and it required a very, very high level of organization and coordination. There were no cell phones at the time or internet, and she got up early on that day to travel to Pretoria. They had to travel in groups of six and seven. Uh, so that they don't get detected by the police. So they couldn't come by bus. They had to travel by train. And for those women, I mean, for 20,000 people to come here, and Pretoria was a very, very hostile place. Right. And so for these women to arrive and to get to the station and in groups of six and seven, get to union buildings and do this march, it, it was the most extraordinary thing. Wow, fascinating. I think shifting away from the politics of the time then, she was your mother-in-law. So talk to me about that relationship. You know, often there's that, uh, that there's that running joke that mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws have that semi-awkward relationship. What was yours like? You know, I say about my mother-in-law that if I had 
ordered a mother-in-law from God and given exact specifications of what I wanted. I couldn't have ordered anyone better than Masisulu. Yes. Uh, she was just the most incredible mother-in-law because she didn't believe in... One thing, she believed in the political life of her, her, of women. So whether you are married or whether you are children, you had a political and public life. So she believed a lot in people's public and uh, people's community identities. So therefore, you know, working as a professional person or going to political meetings or going to organizational meetings uh, with a mother-in-law like that, it, it was never an issue. I know some women with a mother-in-law will frown if you're not at home and looking after the children. She she was not like that. She didn't even like the word makoti because the people came and said makoti makoti. Yeah, yeah. She would she would say these are my children. I mean, I just and, want to say on that very point that you say Mama Sisulu didn't like the term makoti being used. It just speaks such volumes about how ahead of her time she was from a feminism perspective. You know, these are women who are in my home. They don't need to be categorized and bracket, bracketed into a specific term. But I think finally, as as, as we end the interview now, um, that legacy going forward in a 2018 context, your thoughts on that, you know, where do South African women currently find themselves in politics and is it in line with the vision that Mama Sisulu had all those years ago? Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a loaded question. I think the main, the, the issue of violence against women and sexual, uh, gender-based violence and that kind of abuse is something that horrified her. And, you know, the marches that women have been having around the country, I think those are the kind of things that we need to, especially for young women, that women need to organize against these things. Women always need to organize. And I think that's really important. I, I, I find it sad for me that the political formations within, let me not talk about parties, let me talk about the party that I know, the ANC, I don't think that it's where it should be and where she would have wanted it to be, quite frankly. I think there's a lot of things, a lot of challenges. uh, And that, you know, women, many young women activists prefer to organize outside those formations. I think that women... Whatever, whether it's church, community, political party, within their professional life, women need to be organized in some form or the other and network and support each other. Newsbreak, Lotus FM, powered by SABC News.